Let's open up to Galatians. Please open up book Galatians. So last week we were in the book of Acts and we wrapped up Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, if you remember that. Uh, if you remember, they left Antioch of Syria. They went to the island of Cyprus. They did some evangelizing there. From Cyprus, they headed to Asia Minor. And there they visited South Galatia, among other places. And I made mention that in our, through our study of the book of Acts, whenever we come to a certain region uh, that a New Testament letter was written to, like Galatia, we would pause for a minute, do our book of Acts study, and we would then look at the letter. So that is what we are going to do today, looking at uh, the book of Galatians for the next two weeks. Uh, this will be more of an overview study, and uh, then we'll get back into the book of Acts. So... Nice little overview of the book of Galatians. Obviously, being that it's overview, you know, I encourage you to just go read it. It's not that long. Probably only take you about 20, 30 minutes. Um, have a little read of the book of Galatians as we're just going to kind of hit on some major points here. So, if you remember last week, right, it was in Iconium that the Jews wanted to stone Paul and Barnabas, but they received word of that and they were able to flee. So, Paul didn't get stoned there, and then they fled off to Lystra, and then both Lystra and Iconium, those are in South Galatia, and it was in Lystra that the Jews were able to rile up the people, uh, mostly the Gentiles there, and they had Paul stoned, and then God miraculously heals Paul, and they were able to carry on with their missionary journey, and able to return back to Antioch of Syria. So, Many disciples were made in South Galatia by Paul and Barnabas. And then Paul probably writes this letter of, Galatia, of, of Galatians only a year after evangelizing them, probably around 48 AD. It's kind of, it's kind of an early date, but that's m- maybe most likely. Uh, so about a year after evangelizing there in South Galatia, he writes a letter to them. And why does he write a letter? What was the situation going on to these Galatian believers? Well, first of all, the Galatians were here, unfortunately, departing from the gospel. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. It says there, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Yikes, they shouldn't be doing that, should they? Um, What else was happening? Well, the church of Galatia, uh, why was the church of Galatia basically departing from the gospel? Because they were false teachers, what we call Judaizers. That's kind of just the name given to this, these group of people who are responsible for their defection from the gospel. Verse 7 says there, look at verse 7. It says, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So then what do these Judaizers teach? All right, so there's some false teachers, Judaizers. What are they teaching? Well, they were teaching that, as you can read, as you read through the book of Galatians, we'll kind of pick this up. They were teaching that Paul was not a true apostle. So Paul coming to them, preaching to them, well, he's not really a real apostle. I mean, was Paul one of the twelve? Did he walk and did he talk with Jesus? You know, these would probably be some of the arguments that they would be making against the apostle Paul. Uh, They said that the apostles in Jerusalem do not agree with him, and that would be the twelve. right? So they said that his gospel comes from man, not from God. And that Paul has distorted the teaching of the Jerusalem apostles. So we can imagine how disheartening that would be for the Apostle Paul uh, to hear. Uh, So you can just kind of get a sense of the situation there. He needs to address this situation then, doesn't he? 
So what else are they teaching? Well, they also taught that one must observe the Old Testament law and especially circumcision in order to be saved. We kind of see this throughout the book of Galatians. So they are probably also demanding submission to food laws and to uh, following the Old Testament calendar, the Jewish calendar. And Paul's going to address each of these things in this letter. So one of the one of the main bits, and what we'll kind of see here, is that uh, they're calling the Gentiles who have now been converted. Basically, what's happened is, okay, great, you believe in Jesus, so do we. But in order to be really right with God, you also need to be circumcised, as well. So you, you know the, these Gentile men need to be circumcised in order to be justified or right with God. All right. Now you can understand how. All right. So. Were they not justified by faith then, when they put their faith in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel by the Apostle Paul? Well, these Judaizers are saying, no, they're not justified by faith. They didn't get saved when Paul came and preached the gospel to them. Because in order to be truly saved and truly right with God, they need to be circumcised. And along with that, they need to obey the law as well. So you can understand what the Apostle Paul is up against as he's writing this letter to the Galatian church. Right? He does not want them. And, and what he calls that, he calls that departing from the gospel. Because we are saved by faith alone, uh, faith in Christ alone. So if we're adding anything to that, like circumcision or following the Old Testament law, then basically what we're saying is Christ isn't sufficient. Christ isn't enough. I need to do this as well in order to be saved. And now when you talk about doing something else in order to be saved, well, then now it's what you can accomplish as a human being, isn't it? Well, I can just, you know, get my family and my sons circumcised, and then now we're right with God. No, no, no. There's nothing you or I can do in order to be right with God. It's faith in what Christ has already done that gives us our salvation. So this was a huge thing that the Apostle Paul is dealing with. Yeah, and so, you know, I think it's good because we just... We just kind of went through and looked at his evangelizing in Iconium, his evangelizing in Lystra, and now we get to see him writing back to these same people, you know, who he risked his life for, didn't he? I mean, he was stoned in Lystra. So, I mean, people that he definitely really cares about. And after he was stoned, we remember, he went back into Lystra to encourage the saints. So his life was on the line. He cares much about them. And so he writes this letter as well to them. So here's a kind of a simple breakdown then of the book of Galatians. Uh, the first two chapters, Paul is defending his apostleship, right? So he defends his apostleship. And in chapters 3 and 4, he defends his teaching or his theology, the, the message that he went and shared with them. And in chapters 5 and 6, he applies his teaching or he applies his theology. Now, this isn't necessarily a perfect breakdown, but hopefully a helpful one. And uh, so this morning we're going to look at the first three chapters briefly. I'm not going to read over every verse, don't worry, but I'm going to point out some of the main ideas here, and uh, next week we'll wrap up the rest of the book. So let's look at verse 1 then. Paul is starting out by defending his apostleship. And he has to start here because no one will receive his teaching if they do not think that he is a true apostle, right? Why do we need to accept the teaching that Paul says if we don't even believe he's a real, a real apostle? So Paul s- starts off by saying, Paul, an apostle, not from man, men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So 
Paul immediately points out he's not an apostle because some man appointed him, but because of Jesus Christ and God the Father. So questioning Paul's apostleship is basically questioning Jesus and God the Father, for Jesus is the one who appointed him. Paul is going to prove this point as we go along. So the Father raised Jesus from the dead, as he says. Paul really could have ended his argument here. Why is that? He could have kind of closed the book. This is it. This is all I'm writing to you. Because the resurrection of Jesus signifies that the new creation has come, or new covenant has come, new creation has come. The old creation and its laws, like circumcision, have therefore passed away, and the new has come. Now, Paul is going to develop this as well in the rest of the letter uh, as well. So he says, then grace to you, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father, our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a summary of the gospel right here, isn't it? Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So if this is true, then circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't really mean anything. Why? Because circumcision is a work of the flesh, but salvation, salvation is a work of God. So here's some good news for those of us who are in Christ. Right? Christ have uh, has given himself for your sins in a substitutionary way and therefore has delivered you from the present evil age. The evil, in other words, of this present world cannot finally touch you. Now, it doesn't mean we never sin, but it cannot finally touch you. It has no final hold on you, right? And no longer hold, sin no longer holds its power over you due to the cross of Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. For the believer, the gift of God is ours. We have eternal life. Death has no final hold on us, right? Sin has no final grip and no final hold on you. That's good news. It's been done. It's been accomplished, right? So Jewish thought distinguished between this age and the coming age. This age is evil, and for the believer, the coming age is is ours. We look to that eternal city or to the coming age which God has promised to those who love Him. So believers have been granted grace to live the life of the age to come in the midst of the present age. I'll say that again, right? Believers have been granted, right, by grace to live the life of the age to come in the midst of the present age. What does the age... To come, what does that kind of living look like? Well, it can be summed up by love for God and love for your brother and your sister in Christ, right? Love for neighbor. It can be summed up in those things, for that is the way of the future in one sense. So we are to live as this community of one, one people, loving God, loving each other, forgiving one another, blessing one another, encouraging one another, praying for one another, all these things. And that's actually the life of the age to come and the new heavens and the new earth, right? We could not live it that way before we were saved. 
We could not live the way of the age to come before we were in Christ. But Christ has set us free, right, so that we could live that way amongst each other. Right, so that's good news, isn't it? So Jesus then has made all of this possible. And this was all according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the saving work of God in Christ, it leads Paul to praise and worship God the Father. Right? That's the only proper response. Wow, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for what you have done. So God's glory and honor and praise are displayed supremely in Christ and in the cross. God will be praised forever because of his saving work in Christ. So, grace and peace. But grace and peace, here's the thing, right, will not be theirs if they depart from the one true gospel. Grace and peace only come through the gospel. So let's look at the body of the text now, right, Verses starting in verse 6. He says, then, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to, to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you, be, you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We notice that uh, in most of Paul's letters, after the introduction, he often has like a prayer of thanksgiving. But here in the book of Galatians, there's no prayer of thanksgiving. Right? It's quite unusual. Right? So this is no light matter for the Apostle Paul. Basically, Paul has nothing to be thankful for if they are going to desert the gospel that he has given to them. So really, he just immediately starts with warning, right? This is warning passage of do not depart from the gospel. He warns them that if anyone, even himself or an angel, brings to them a different gospel than the one that they had originally preached, that's Paul and Barnabas, well, let that person be accursed. Let that person be an anathema, Right? This is how serious Paul takes the gospel. We, we cannot you know, miss up the gospel message. Very important. Right? Because missing up the gospel message misses up people's lives, and they don't have Christ if they don't have the true gospel. So very significant and important. Right? So basically, let them be a curse. Is ba- basically, let them be under judgment. It's kind of like uh, the same wording is used with the people of Jericho. Right? They were going to be judged by God. God had determined it. That's what he was going to do. He was going to judge them. So let these people who are teaching a false gospel, let them be judged as well. So Paul doesn't kind of mess around with false teachers, does he? In verse 10, it seems that some were saying that Paul was trying to please man with the message that he brought to the Galatians. Why would they say something like that? You can imagine them saying that if Paul's message was truly from God, then, when he, then he would have told the Gentiles that they need to be circumcised and that they need to follow the law. See, Paul is just trying to please man. He's just trying to make it easy on these Gentile believers. Most likely, these are probably some of the things that they were saying. But Paul points out, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Why, why does he say still trying? Because Paul used to live his life in order to please man. Right? He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. 
He was sitting under the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most uh, famous scribes and teachers of that day. Right? He was loved by the people. He was pleasing to men. Right? Nobody was attacking Paul. He was the one attacking others. He was the one attacking Christians, wasn't he? But if he was still trying to please man, he would no longer then be a servant of Christ, carrying out Christ's will. So he goes on to say then in verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Talking about the road to Damascus. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. I'm not going to read the final uh, verses here in chapter 1, but I want to briefly break down what's happening. So the Judaizers are saying, Paul is the sword of the gospel, received from Jerusalem by the twelve. Paul says, no way. I, have not, uh, I am not even dependent on the twelve apostles. I received my gospel directly from Christ, on the road to Damascus. And then I didn't even go off seeking the approval of the apostles because I don't need it. Christ revealed it to me himself. So the story of chapter 1 is that Paul is not dependent on the other apostles. And the story of chapter 2 is that the gospel that he does preach is not distorted. So he's <coughs> So he's defended his he's defending his apostleship and he's also going to defend his teachings. Chapter 2, verse 1, <clears throat> right? Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. So he comes before the apostles and he shares with them the gospel that he was proclaiming among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, other Judaizers, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. He's talking about uh, Peter, James, John. Though I say who seem influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. He's defending his apostleship, isn't he? So what's this story he's retelling? Paul brings Titus to Jerusalem. Some say he needs to be circumcised, the Judaizers. Paul says, no way, he does not. That would compromise the gospel. So how do the Jerusalem apostles then respond to what Paul is saying? 
and when verses 9 and 10, look at verses 9 and 10. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So this is a really important argument by the Apostle Paul. And I know this is like really technical, but it's, it's important for us to kind of understand even the technicalities of what's taking place, right? So he does not circumcise Titus, and the apostles still go ahead and give him the right hand of fellowship, acknowledging his apostleship to the uncircumcised. And they also do not tell him that the Gentiles need to be circumcised. They don't force Titus to be circumcised, and they don't command Paul when he goes out to witness to the Gentiles to have them circumcised as well. So this is all, you know, countering what the false teachers, the Judaizers are saying to the believers who are in Galatia. Right? That's really important. Imagine someone here telling us who are all Gentile men, right? Telling us that in order for you to be right with God, you need to be circumcised, right? Now, here's the thing. People in Galatia were believing that, right? They were believing that message and, and, and believing that they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved, in order to be right with God. So this is why the, Paul, of course, writing this letter, defending this point, really important. So the Judaizers, they say, I'm not an apostle, that I have distorted the d- teaching of the apostles in Jerusalem. But my, po- my apostleship is through Christ and the apostles in Jerusalem, they affirm me and my message. Not that I need their affirmation. But he says, I can prove it anyway. So that's what he does in one sense. Right? I don't need the apostles' affirmation, but they're behind me anyway, and I'll prove it to you by writing here what it says in chapter 2. So I'm not going to read verses 11 through 14, but Paul makes mention that he rebuked Peter for not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter was eating with uncircumcised Gentiles in Antioch. That's Antioch of Syria. But when the Judaizers came down from Jerusalem... He drew back and he separated himself. So he got afraid. The fear of man set in. Uh, We've kind of seen that before in Peter, haven't we? And Paul says in verse 14, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We all understand what that means, right? Uh, In other words, he's, he's saying this, right? Peter, you live like a Gentile. You eat what Gentiles eat and you eat with Gentiles now. But then why are you going to try and force the Gentiles to live like Jews. When you step away, you're basically agreeing with the message of the Judaizers that they need to be circumcised. Which one is it, Peter? Are we free from the law or are we not? <coughs> and yes, of course, Paul is making the point, we are free from the law. So we don't have all the details with uh, that situation with Peter, uh, but most definitely he would have agreed with the Apostle Paul. So now we've really come to the, the, the main point of the letter, you could say kind of like the thesis of the letter. Should Gentile converts come under the law and practice circumcision and everything else? Is that what it means to be a Gentile convert to Christianity? Or are Gentile converts no longer under the law and therefore have no need of circumcision? Now, this was a big question in the early church, as we can see. And when we get back into the book of Acts, we're going to look at this question specific, specifically at what is known as the Jerusalem Council. 
and they're going to hash it out amongst themselves whether uh, Gentiles need to be circumcised or not. So most likely Paul's letter to the Galatians preceded the Jerusalem council. What happens there? So are we justified by works of the law like circumcision or are we justified by faith in Jesus Christ? In other words, what does it mean to be right with God as a Gentile? Does it mean, as the Judaizers are saying, you must believe in Jesus and be circumcised? Or does it mean that we need to believe in Jesus only? We're going to see the answer in this next section here. So Paul has defended his apostleship. Now he's going to defend his teaching. Verse 15, here's the main thesis of the letter. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is Paul's gospel right there. Verse 15 and 16. This is the Apostle Paul's gospel. We are not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So there is no need for these Gentiles to be circumcised, right? Because then they're trying to justify themselves by the works of the law instead of simply by faith in Jesus Christ. And even though he is a Jew himself, right, he doesn't, he isn't justified by his own works of the law. He believes he's only justified by faith in Jesus Christ as well. So by faith, by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one. Uh, and this is actually really good news, right? Uh, isn't this good news for us as, of, as believers, right? We don't need to go out and to do anything in order to be right with God. We don't have to, you know, go to Rome and climb up steps in order to be justified and made right with God. We only need to put our faith in what Christ has already done on our behalf. We are made right with God by faith in Jesus. And here's this thing as well, right? No one will be justified by works of the law. That's not the queen, right? That's not celebrities. That's not our favorite athletes. None of them will be justified by any of their so-called good works. Only people who put their faith in Jesus Christ will be justified by God. This is God's way. This is God's way of salvation. This is how he has opened the door, access to himself, faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Skipping down now to chapter 3, Paul goes on to say to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched uh, bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, so Paul's saying the gospel was actually preached to Abraham. Really? How was the gospel preached to Abraham? It says, In you shall all the nations be blessed. 
That's the gospel, right? So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So I think we all just totally understand what's going on here, right? What is Paul saying, right? How did you receive the Spirit? That is a mark of being a true Christian. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the law or by the hearing of faith? By the hearing of faith, of course, right? That's how they received the Spirit. Think about Cornelius and his household. Remember when Peter goes off to Cornelius and begins preaching the gospel to them? Does he tell them, okay, now be circumcised in order to receive the Spirit? No, he preaches the gospel to them. They have faith, and then they receive the Spirit of God, right? So it was, no, it was by no works of the law that the Gentiles received the Spirit of God. It was simply through faith, through faith. Therefore, Peter, or Paul is saying, you don't have to keep the law and be circumcised in order to belong to the people of God. All you need is faith in Jesus what is his second argument? His second argument here is, right, he goes back to the father of their faith, the Jewish faith. How was Abraham right with God? Was it because of his obedience or was it because of his faith? Genesis 15:6 says, Abraham believed God, faith, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Paul says, therefore, the sons of Abraham are those who have faith. Right, this is very similar to Jesus' interactions with the Jews in the Gospel of John. Remember, they claimed to be sons of Abraham, yet they wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus said, if you were truly sons of Abraham or sons of faith, you would accept me and believe my message. But because you do not accept me and you want to kill me, I know who your real father is. Your real father is the devil. Why? Right? Why are you sons of the enemy instead of sons of God? because you lack faith and you want to kill me. In order to be a true son of Abraham, you have to be a son of faith. You must have faith in Jesus Christ. So this is the point that Paul is making as well. If you look then at verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Does anybody abide by all the things written in the law? No way, right? So then they're under a curse. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. <coughs> now this doesn't mean that there was no believing remnant within Israel. There were believing, a believing remnant. There's always been a believing remnant in, in Israel. But notice that term, a believing remnant. So those who were truly the people of God with, with it, uh, of Israel, of the people of Israel, were always people of faith. If they were trying to be justified by the works of the law in their own obedience, then they were not really the people of God because no one can be justified by the works of the law. This is what Paul is saying. So he goes on to say in verse 12, But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Paul is saying here 
that the restored Israel or the true Israel are the children of Abraham, Jews and Gentiles. And who are the children of Abraham? Those who believe. Who is the true Israel? Those who believe. So even if, if even though we're Gentiles, if we believe on Jesus Christ, we are a part of the true Israel. All the promises in the old covenant that were given, uh, looking forward to the new covenant and to the eternal age, right? Those are ours in Christ, right? We are now a part of the people of God. We have been adopted into the family of God. So then Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 through 14 tells us, we are justified by faith, not by works. And Paul argues from 3.15 and following that the old covenant doesn't last forever. Now, I'm not going to read all of it out, but here's Paul's point. The covenant made with Israel at Sinai, Paul's point is, that was a temporary covenant. And so the provisions or the stipulations of that covenant are not permanent. Circumcision, food laws, following the Jewish calendar, the Abrahamic covenant, that came first. The Sinai covenant then followed. And you are not under that Sinai covenant anymore. Therefore, you don't have to obey its stipulations. The old covenant, Paul is pointing out, was designed to separate Jews from Gentiles. And it worked. And it worked. The Gentiles looked at the Jews and said, oh, they don't work on Saturdays. And... Uh, they circumcise their male children. They have these weird dietary laws. And so these laws segregated them from the Jews. But that covenant is now over. So right. So then the segregation is supposed to be over then now as well. Jews and Gentiles can now come together as one. And the law also served another purpose, Paul says. The law also revealed Israel's sin. Paul is saying that the law isn't the answer, right? Laws cannot change people's hearts. The law didn't stop sin. It only exasperated it. So the death and resurrection of Jesus then is the answer. What, what, is, the, what is the answer then? It's not found in the old covenant. The answer is found in the person of Jesus Christ, right? So this is the, you know, this is the good news of the gospel for us, right? It's quite, it's quite simple for us. What do we do in order, what do we need to do in order to be right with God? You know, someone could tell you all kinds of things in one sense, couldn't they? You can ask anybody that question. What do I need to do in order to be right with God? You know what Jesus says, right? Believe. Believe in the Son. Believe in the one whom the Father has sent. Believe that Christ has died for your sins at the cross of Calvary, that he's paid your debt, that he's rose, risen again three days later, and that he's coming back again to get his people, right? And then we are made right with God through faith, through faith in what Christ has done. This is the good news of the gospel. So then next week, we will look at what it looks like to then live in light of the fact that we are no longer under the law, but as the Apostle Paul says, under grace. We are under grace. Now, being under grace doesn't mean we get to live any old way that we want to, right? In fact, it means that we live in obedience to Christ. And it means that because we have the Spirit, that we will also then walk in the Spirit. And here's, uh, I don't want to uh, confuse us too much here, but here's the amazing thing. When we walk in the Spirit, we ultimately fulfill the law, right? Now, that doesn't mean that we have to get circumcised, but we fulfill the Spirit of the law. We fulfill loving God. 
we fulfill loving one another, which is most important to God. We do that as we walk in the Spirit of God. So let's pray.